Hello, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study here at Celebration Church. All those who are sitting here, as well as those who watch us online, small group studies, our other campuses, let's all stand together here anyway. I'm not sure what you're, what you're doing over there at the other places, but... And we'll open in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace to us. We love you, God. We're here because of you. We're here because we desire to learn of you, that we might grow more in our faith by giving heed to the scriptures, to the gospels, to the writings of the apostles. And we thank you for it. Give us wisdom and insight, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Make words come alive to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good to have you all here. Oh, y'all. We are in Chevrolet. We are here in uh, 1 Corinthians, the uh, 10th chapter, uh, picking up verse 14. Uh, we're going through the book of Acts, uh, verse at a time, every time in the book of Acts, it is assumed that the apostle wrote one of these letters. We jump to the letter, we read it, and then we'll go back and pick it up in the book of Acts. So we're in Corinthians. We're in the 10th chapter now, and uh, verse 14. Uh, Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. So now he's going to start talking about idolatry. I speak to sensible people. <laughs> that is debatable. <laughs> Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, what it's going to do, Paul's writing style, there are a few places, and again, it is very much the minority. I do want to stress this because I've been on a couple of them and making a big deal out of it. Uh, just a few places in his writings that it's really hard to know what in the world he's talking about. It gets really confusing. And he has this writing style that, as I pointed out last week, is kind of like a uh, sheepdog trying to keep sheep in line. You can imagine how confusing it is for the sheep when they're going along and the dog's barking from the, from the left. Well, let's go this way. And all of a sudden he comes over here. Whoa, what a schizophrenic dog. Why is he over here? And he's just back and forth. What's with the dog? All to keep the sheep going in the right direction, okay? And Paul kind of writes that way. So we already read where he's talking about idolatry and food offered to idols and stuff. And he said, listen, stupid idols, it's nothing. You would assume from that then, it's fine if we sit and eat food offered to some idol or whatever. Well, now he's going to bark from the other side. And what you got, it gets a little confusing. The thing is, you just got to realize where the middle is and do some interpolating, if you will, which is certainly what you got to do when you listen to me. <laughs> so jump from one thing to the other. What is he saying? All right. So now he says, after basically saying, look, it's no big deal, he kind of points out, well, it, it is kind of a big deal. And then he's going to end with, it's no big deal again. Hang on, here we go. So he says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. He's talking about communion now. Which, by the way, I think uh, evangelical Christians, by and large, I mean, that's a pretty broad brush. You know, they always talk about you hearing the election, you know, he won with the evangelicals. You know, it's, it's a pretty broad brush of pretty much anybody that's not a Catholic <laughs> or even a Lutheran, you know, not a traditional church. So there's a lot of us out there enough you know, it's interesting. You don't hear much about the uh, Presbyterian vote <laughs> or even the Catholic vote or whatever once in a while, but they're always talking about the evangelical vote. It's a pretty big chunk of people in this country. Praise God. We're noticed once in a while. So not always for the good, but we're noticed. Okay. So evangelicals generally approach communion very lightly, almost passe. Now, they, many would have checked, no, no, we don't do that, but it's just, you know, they do it only because they got to do it, you know, once a month. 
And if it weren't for that, I mean, I know evangelical pastors. The communion is almost, uh, it kind of gets in the way. It gets in the way of the service. You know, oh, we can't, this because we got to do communion this Sunday. You know, oh, okay, so we can't do what we really want to do. We got to do communion. And they give you a little cracker and whatever and grape juice because you can't touch wine, it's a sin. So, uh, you know, they kind of just do it and, and not. Um, Catholics, obviously, those of us who are raised Catholic know they take it much more seriously. Uh, and I think that mainline traditional churches like Catholics, Lutherans, or whatever uh, probably are closer to the truth on this than we are, to be honest with you. Uh, it's one of the reasons why at Celebration Church we take it more seriously. One of the criticisms from other like-minded evangelicals towards us is you guys are too Catholic. Why? Because we do communion every Sunday because we pray the Lord's Prayer together. And I was like, ah, anathema. Because they're trying to stay away from that as far as they can. There's lots of reasons why they do it. Some of them legit. Some of them are nonsense. But it is what it is. It's an extreme reaction. So uh, they, they tend to not take it very seriously. We try to stress it and take it more seriously because as Paul writes here, it's a bit more serious than, again, typical evangelicals would think. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ? That's a big statement. You know, it's not just, you know, hey, give me a hit of that stuff, all right? And is not the bread that we break our participation in the body of Christ? This is how they thought of it. We are literally partaking in the body and the blood of Christ. Now, hardcore, especially from a Catholic viewpoint, and they're theologians, they get into this debate about transubstantiation. And if you don't know this word, means good for you. I mean, so who cares? But just for those who are aware, I've had young people ask me this question, actually. What they argue is that it literally becomes the blood and body of Christ. And they really push the literal part of it, but to a point that it gets a little crazy. I mean, it's never actually blood, okay? You know, it's not actually flesh, uh, but the, what they're trying to push is to them, this is literally the body and blood of Christ. They take it really, really seriously. Again, I think they go over the line on it as if it's, um, you know, that itself becomes holy. It's, it doesn't itself become literally the physical body and blood of Jesus. You test it, it's still going to be grape juice and, uh, in our case, wine. Okay, so, but it's important. It is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. All right, it's not just a cracker thing we do once in a while. Uh, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. There's a lot of symbolism in this communion thing that they take more seriously. Uh, now, the analogy here breaks down quite a bit more because uh, they literally would take a loaf and tear it up, and, and we don't do that, you know, because especially in a church this size, it's a lot of loaves, <laughs> okay? Uh, you know, and then they got away from the, even the loaf and use the little wafers. I guess they could argue it's cut from one gigantic, humongous loaf. Uh, so he says, now consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat sacrifices participate in the altar? Now this is from a Jewish perspective. Paul, again, he kind of barks like this. Oftentimes he does things and refers to a very Jewish perspective because that's where our faith comes out of. Jesus was Jewish, all that, promises to Abraham, all this stuff. Moses, Ten Commandments, all this stuff. But then he goes out of his way to say, we don't live by the Jewish law. And then at times he will really point out that we don't do what the Jews do. And then he reminds us that we need to do things because that's what the Jews did. And it's like, all right. Now what he's talking about, he's talking about the priests who do the sacrifices, which, you know, 
I don't think they do that anyway. Anywhere, do they anymore? I don't know. That's been a long time ago. Well, these actually sacrifice animals on the altar. Been a long time since they've done that. Uh, and uh, the rule was that as the priest, as you were sacrificing, you actually got to partake in some of the food, which we pointed out last week. Remember, he talked about the, you know, it's right for a pastor to participate his sustenance from the ministry. Even though Paul said, I'd rather die than do that, but he said, this is the way it is, and it's a good thing, and it was his choice. So, um, so he's talking about at the altar, he's participating in that food. So his analogy here, he says, do I mean then that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, because he just said it wasn't anything. But he's trying to clarify the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. All right. All right. Now, a minute ago, we're thinking, eh, who cares? It's nothing. Now we're going, oh, wait, I don't want to eat demon food, you know. Okay. Now, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Wow. That's, so now we're thinking, Man, you need to stay away from food offered to idols. If he ended here, right? This is what we think. I mean, uh, people would get really intense. Oh, we can't do it because it's demon food. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? No, no. Okay, okay, okay. We'll stay away from it. Then <laughs> he takes us, runs over and jumps on the other side of the sheep and barks from the other direction. I have the right to do anything, you say. Okay, but not everything is beneficial. Well, I have the right to do anything, but, but not everything is constructive. And what he means by the right is our freedom is in Christ. The Christian experience really isn't like any other religion in the world. There's not really a lot of rules and regulations. Our experience isn't driven by rules and regulations. Every other religion in the world is. Judaism certainly was big time. Ours is about the rule of God written in our hearts and being led of the spirit. And there's a great amount of freedom to that. So what they're saying is, well, you know, we're free from all this. But the only thing that's really held over is just basic morality, you know, particularly sexual morality, about lying, cheating, stealing. I mean, these are still fundamental rules that virtually every religion in the world all agrees with, but that's about as far as it goes. We don't, you know, you're not going to go to hell if you don't go to a church on a Sunday. I, on the other hand, may yell at you profusely. But it, you know what I'm saying? We, we try to encourage each other, but it's not like it's written in stone and, you know, it's not, you got to go in and you know, punch your card. <laughs> Come to church, God's all checked in. Hey, man, can you check me out? I'm going to leave early. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, it's not, it's not that kind of sticky rule. But he says not everything is, okay, you don't have to, but there's things that aren't good for you. They're not constructive. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. Okay. Uh, eat anything sold in the marketplace without asking questions of conscience. What? Now, he told us, and he's idols, eating food idols. It's, an idol is nothing. Okay, then he goes into a bunch of other stuff. He comes back and says, but you don't want to participate in the food of demons. Okay, then let's stay away from it. And then he says, when you go buy food, don't ask where it came from. <laughs> I thought it was demon food. I mean, it's, right? A little, a sheep are a little confused here. He says, don't ask questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God owns everything. What do you, what do you, you know? We're free. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, which it's fine to go to unbelievers' homes and eat meals with them. It's really right for believers to go to Christians' homes and eat meals. And 
my phone number is, no, never mind. All right, so eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So you go to a heathen's house. And again, this stuff doesn't really apply to us today because I don't know anybody who worships idols and sacrifices goats to some demigod. If we were in India, it changes a bit because that's a bit more common, to say the least. But it's actually because of the uh, growth of uh, Judaism and Christianity and stuff, idols have been pretty much wiped off the face of the earth, except for in a few corners of the earth. So in that sense, this message has largely succeeded. Uh, And uh, Islam, which is really an offshoot from Abraham, you got Abraham and one side went Jewish, the other side went, you know, uh, to the Islamic race, also very much against idols and stuff like that. So the face of the earth has pretty much been wiped off of the, this idea of idols, which at one time, that wasn't the case. Everywhere, idolatry was a big problem. It was a big problem here for these early Christians. So we're talking about something that by and large doesn't mean jack. However, I will make a tie-in momentarily. All right, so someone invites you to your house. You're gonna eat food. Well, you just told us we don't wanna participate with demon food, right? We don't know. So someone invites you, just, just don't ask. Paul was the first, don't ask, don't tell. You think it was Bill Clinton? No, it was him, all right? But if someone says to you, hey, you like this burger? It's a demon burger, all right? We offered it in a sacrifice. We danced around naked, howled at the moon. It was a fabulous night. You should have been there. And now we're eating it. Then he says, well, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you where it came from, and for the sake of your own conscience, because now you know it's demon food, and we're not supposed to participate with, uh, you know, this table of demons. So it's really more of a, more than the literal thing, it's the mental part of knowing where this stuff comes from. All right? Now, I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? In other words, he says, if I take part in the meal with thanks thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? (sighs) Okay. He's making a huge argument here for I can eat anything I want. Except you just told us don't eat the demon food. Because you're not supposed to partake in a meal of demons and it's like (laughs) what are you talking about? Okay, okay. So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. Uh, for I am not seeking my own good, but for the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I ex- follow the example of Christ. Now, this is what he's saying, which he said earlier. I do everything I can to promote the gospel. If I'm going to do something that's going to mess with somebody's head and with their faith, I try to avoid that. Don't do things that are going to really bother some people. The problem with this approach, of course, is there's people who claim offense about everything. And then you can't do anything because you're going to cause me to stumble. Really? Shut up. All right? They're just, why? You can't do that. You can't do that. And they're the, they, they're the rulers of the universe. You know, they're the people who agree that we, we can't. <laughs> I just saw a hilarious blog. I don't know if I have the courage to print it. I probably will because I'm out of control. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, if you see it on my Facebook, you'll know what I'm talking about. All this political correctness nonsense, you know. Because in the, in the blog, I won't go through the whole thing, but in the blog, I say, you know, most evangelical Christians are seated on the political right. It's a fact. It just it is what it is. And of course, as good practicers of the right, 
we rail against political correctness, right? But yet the greatest bastion of correct speech control is in the evangelical church. And they decide what can and cannot be said, what's appropriate, what cannot be appropriate. It's like, really? Who voted these people in? I didn't vote on any of this stuff. And then of course, well, the Bible says no corrupt communication should proceed out of your mouth. But who says it's corrupt? You say it's corrupt. I don't say it's corrupt. It's fine with me. You know, for example, the phrase, you know, I keep saying like I tell you, I keep telling you. You know, the phrase like, you know, what the hell? Okay? Not so hardcore evangelical, that's, that's blasphemy. But we're talking about hell. Since when can you not use hell in vain? You don't use the name of God in vain. Since when did hell get lifted up to God's status? He's like, well, it doesn't build you up. Really? Some of the most building up moments in my life was when somebody looked at me and said, what the hell? You know, <laughs> right? And they, oh my gosh, you're right. What the hell am I thinking? Now some people say, that's cursing. Who says it's cursing? You said it's cursing because somebody in Tulsa, Oklahoma told you it's cursing. They can all kiss my donkey. All right, so, I just, I just don't buy this. I think it's nonsense. You, and that's nothing, that's nothing. Oh my, there's a list of what is approved and what isn't approved, and they all just have fits about this stuff. Stuff it. All right, so anyway. Now, the tie-in I want to make in here is what it says here. It says, don't ask questions for the sake of conscience. Now, here, we do have this today. We have Christians, usually really hardcore on the right, guardians of political correctness there is on earth, who disapprove of what everybody else thinks because they don't think like they do. And you'll hear them on Christian radio and say, the hardest of the hardcore, you know. And they have fits about things like Easter eggs. Easter eggs. Because if you really look into the history of Easter eggs, it follows all the way back to some kind of pagan origin. In fact, <laughs> there was a time in Christianity when we considered Easter eggs, they were called Satan's testicles. Which people on the political right would say it's inappropriate to say testicle. Who says? They say, because they're, oh, they're, they're the holy ones. All right. So, because these are Satan's testicles, they go crazy yelling at churches because you have Easter eggs. How can you? Don't you realize? And they go through huge efforts to explain the origins of the eggs. When Paul says, man, don't even ask. Right? Now we're talking stupid eggs. These people were worshiping demons, dancing around, and sacrificing and all kinds of demon crazy stuff. And Paul says, that? Don't even ask questions. Well, if you're not even supposed to ask questions about that, who made these people, the people should go around explaining whether or not something is in fact Satan's testicles? Right? It ticks me off. Shut up. Oh, we got to tell you where it comes from. Really? Because Paul said, don't ask. The same thing with Halloween. Oh, do the evangelicals are drooling men? <laughs> they hide in the basement, you know, they're putting in the blood of lambs on their doors and stuff because the death angel's going to come by when little kids are asking for candy. We're going to protect ourselves. Don't you know the origin? I don't care about the origins. 
The Bible says don't even ask about the origins. Why do these people feel obligated to tell all of us that the truth of Halloween was 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, a bunch of pagans were dancing naked on a rock around some stone in England somewhere? I don't care. I'm just trying to get some candy. Okay, I, I don't connect. Well, they talk about death. Well, what's wrong with that? Death is, a, you know what's good about Halloween? It reminds people they're going to die. Right? Good chance to witness the people. Man, you see all this death stuff? Yeah, are you saved? Yeah. <laughs> just, just Christmas trees. There you go, already. You're revealing the evil. So, so no. What's it do with the Christmas trees? Well, seriously, go ahead, cough it up. The what? Because there's a pagan thing. It's a tie to pagan things and trees and stuff like that. So they find some obscure passage in Ezekiel talking about a tree. And they start drooling. Yeah, oh, that's exactly, Christmas trees. They all go crazy about that. Much less Santa. You know, the difference between Santa and Satan is just the N. Think about it. Take Satan and move the end. It's Santa! Ha, ha, ha! Don't ask, don't tell. Now, I will for the record say, and nobody listens to me on this. My own family doesn't listen to me. I don't think you should be lying to your kids about Santa. Now, I'm talking about lying, where you and everybody swears from it. Oh, it's really real. I, First of all, it's not necessary. We never do that with our kids. We talk about Santa, but it's a game. We're pretending. We also played Darth Vader. I never one time had all my family said, listen, I'm telling you, Phil, there really is a Vader. In fact, I saw him last week in Minneapolis. Right. Again, nobody listens to me. Don't write me. I don't care. I think, how about we not lie to our children? Somebody say amen. All right. Oh, he doesn't like Santa. Santa's fine. You can pretend you go to sleep with Santa. We did all that stuff. But we never said to them, there really is. And I remember when I first time I found out that it really wasn't. Last week, you know, it's, it's, it's like a couple of months ago, I'm still getting over that, you know. What? You lied to me. That's exactly what I thought as a kid. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so slow, darn it. That's just me. You know, it's, it's like, again, it's a small matter. I just think you generally you shouldn't lie. But, but I, I don't think it's Satan because we, we move the end. All right. Okay. So there, there we have that very confusing portion of Scripture. Principles there that are good to follow. But the good thing is we don't really deal with this. Now, you think that's confusing? I'm glad you came tonight. The very next verse. In chapter 11, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them to you. I praise you for that. You guys have been listening and you've been doing what I told you to do and, and we have certain Christian traditions. Now he's going to describe a Christian tradition that makes absolutely, absolutely, as best as I can tell, no sense at all. Now, not to insult God or the Bible. I'm just saying that we don't know what he's talking about. In fact, this is one of those places you go and you look on all the theologians who boil this out, many of them finally with this part go, I don't know what he's talking about. 
all right? I don't know, we don't know, it was 2,000 years ago, was it cultural, I don't know. Uh, the church actually has followed what we're about to say for thousands of years until recently. Let's find out what I'm talking about. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, okay. The head of every woman is the man, okay. That's not very popular today. And the head of Christ is God. Now, people say, well, that's abusive to women. Wait a minute, that's not abusive. The head of every man is Christ. Christ is not abusive to us. How do you connect those dots? You're talking about the one who sacrificed himself, laid down his life, gave up everything, served us instead of being served? Any lady got a problem with a guy like that who serves you, doesn't serve himself? I don't even know any guys like that, okay? <laughs> so let's say the Bible says there's an abusive to women. They don't know what they're talking about. All right? And by the way, this is where you get the headship of the family. And this is where many, again, evangelical Christians have over-exaggerated and confuse a lot of people today. I'm thinking about actually doing a study on this uh, in a few weeks down the road on, on the role of husband and wife in the home. Uh, one of the great quotes is, you know, a husband's supposed to be the, but the spiritual leader of the home. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. There's no place in the Bible that says a man's supposed to be more spiritual than his wife. I know couples, they seriously have meltdowns over this. The wife is mad as a hornet and treats her husband disrespectfully, which is against the Bible, because he's not spiritual enough. Well, he's supposed to be the spiritual, he's not actually a spiritual leader. Nobody said he's supposed to be the spiritual leader. It just says he's the head, he's responsible for what happens. This idea that a man has to be more spiritual than his wife is absurd. Some are, some are not. There's some homes, a lot of homes, that the wife is way more spiritually sensitive and in tune and knows the Bible better than her husband would ever know. And prays better. This is some of these women pray, oh Lord, husband, I mean, they're great. Yes, the guy to pray. Uh, thanks, God. Uh, amen. Yeah, that's about as much as he can get out, okay, because he's not very good. So what? So they talk better. That doesn't make you more spiritual. Well, the man has to handle all the finances. Really? You know what a disaster that would be in a lot of homes? Because they get this crazy focus on the family. I should just pick on these guys, but I love them, but they're... Okay. You know, a man has to do all this. He doesn't have to do, who says he has to do all this stuff? Goodness gracious. All right, anyway, well, let's not get stuck in that. I'll preach a whole message on that. All right, anyway. And then after laying up with this headship, she says, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. It is? By the way, later we're going to read where Paul says, I don't allow women to speak in the church. Now, there's context to that, which we'll explain. Because anyone says, because they're against women preachers and women. Ah, women should, don't speak. What does he say? If a woman who Put it back up there. Keep going. <laughs> the beginning of verse five. Verse five. There, every woman who, 
or <gasps> you know, prophesying. They, they, they call when a pastor speaks prophesying. Someone who's speaking under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So he's comp- saying, listen, when a woman prays or prophesies, it needs to be done in a certain way. So later when he talks about women not being able to speak, he's not, unless, he's not schizophrenic. It seems like it sometimes because we don't understand what he's saying. I'll explain to that when we get to that. But it's not saying a woman cannot preach, nor does it say a woman cannot lead in prayer or any of that thing. Because he says here about women who pray and who prophesy in the church. Now we lose it because of what he's talking about. <laughs> we don't know what he's talking about. When a woman prays or prophesies, speaks, preaches, teaches, she should have her head covered. Because if she doesn't, it's the same as shaving her head. Okay. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well cut off her head, but it is, if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Okay. Now, I would say for the bulk of the last 2,000 years, this was a standard of Christian worship. Uh, many of us who grew up, you know, some of you geezers my age, you grew up in churches, the women always had hats, and veils and stuff on their head. I mean, it was standard. Now in 2016, I was like, I don't know anybody who does this anymore, except for some black churches. But I don't think it's because they have to. They just like wearing big fancy hats. They kind of just dress to kill. You know, uh, they look fabulous, all right? But it's not obligatory as far as I'm aware of. Uh, I'm not aware of anywhere in Europe, anywhere in Asia, any Christian community. Now, maybe in the middle of China, maybe some, maybe some places, enclaves here and there, maybe in Eastern Orthodox churches, I don't know, maybe they still cover that, in the Middle East, do they still do this? Okay, so there's places where they still do this, but it is by and large the most disregarded portion of scripture in Western culture, because I'm not aware of any church anywhere who requires women to cover their heads, all right? Well, we think it's culture, but even that doesn't make sense, because we're about to get into this, okay? A man should not cover his head. Now, this is, again, culturally. If a man prays, what's the first thing he's supposed to do? Take off your hat. Remove your hat. That's, that's, that's where everybody does this, right? Where do we get that? We get that from here, okay? Since he's in the image and the glory of God, he's supposed to not have anything on his head. Now, here's where the cultural thing is very odd because Paul is often referring to Jewish custom. Do you know what a Jewish man does when he prays? He covers his head. They always cover their heads before they pray. And most devout Jewish men always have their heads covered with the little beanie, what do they call that thing? A yarmulke. Yeah, I didn't think it was called beanie. All right, so, with <laughs> a little... <laughs> no, it's not one of those beanies. It's, it's a yarmulke. That's tradition. So you look at this and go... Well, this is a bit odd, okay? A man shouldn't have his head covered when, when, when he, because of his, uh, you know, because of the glory of God, all right? But women, a woman is in the glory of man. That's why she should have her hair covered, okay? I mean, he's giving the reasoning for this. It's the reasoning that doesn't make any sense, at least unless we're missing something. A lot of theologians don't understand it. Uh, for man did not come from woman, but from woman from man. Okay. 
Neither was man created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. Agreed, we understand that hence the headship. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. <laughs> now, what does that mean? And these theologians, I can read. Don't send me your theological clips and mail them to me. This is what it means. I, I, I read it, but they don't know what they're talking about. Honest theologians say they don't know what they're talking about. In fact, they're not sure if he's talking about fallen angels or good angels. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Okay. Some say a woman should have her head covered because of fallen angels. But the logic step we can't make. Or a woman should have her head covered because that's offensive to angels. Okay. But where does that come from? There's no reference to this. We don't understand it. It just literally don't understand. Now, Paul had been with these people day and night for, how long was he with them? A year at least at one time. Maybe they talked about stuff we don't, we don't know. We honestly just don't know what he is talking about. One could, and there was one argument, you know, that it is actually offensive to angels for women to gather and worship and not have, have a cover to the head. You could imply that the reason we don't see more of the power of God in churches is because women don't have their heads covered and the angels are offended, so they're not showing up when we're worshiping. That's quite a stretch, okay? And... It's not like the places where they do cover their heads have all these miracles. You know, I would buy into that because of the, the few, because there's a few groups that they do this and man, if all of a sudden God is showing up and people are getting healed, raised from the dead, cancers again, disappearing and stuff, I'd say, man, cover your head, girls. Get some on that head. We don't want to take off the angels. Then that, at least it would make sense. I mean, I'd buy into that, but there's, you don't see any dramatic experience spiritually between heads covered and heads that are not covered. I just, we don't know what he's talking about. Again, it is, by and large, the single greatest portion of scripture that is virtually universal, at least in Western culture, ignored in virtually every church, every denomination, the whole deal. Which just makes people uncomfortable, you know, when you reason, man, we should, I guess we should be doing this. I guess, I don't know, it just it doesn't make sense. Because he's not making, his arguments don't make any sense. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. So we need each other. I don't understand the lines. For a woman came from man, so also man is born of a woman, but everything comes from God. Now, that's kind of a cool statement. Because what he's saying is we, we need to depend from each other. He just made the argument that woman comes from man. But every single man in the world, except from Adam, comes from a woman. So it's all tied together. So he's really talking about equality. People who whine and complain that Christianity is abusive to women, there was no equality. Christianity was the first religion in the world that brought women up to the same status as men. And in the church, Paul said, there's no difference between male and female. All right? Women were deaconesses in the Bible. This uh, taken out of context thing where Paul says, you know, I, we don't allow women to speak, it, it makes no sense because he said they prayed, they prophesied, they were deaconesses. You know, there wasn't any what people interpret that as. There's not that women have to sit in a corner somewhere and not say anything. Is not true. Again, I'll tell you what most people think uh, that means when we get there. Uh, because men and women are tied to get together. Even despite what he says about women come from a man, the reality is every man comes from a woman. We're independent. All right. Again, that's that barking dog thing. He says this and then he jumps over here. Woo! Now judge for yourselves. Again, he's making his argument. 
To him, this is a big deal. He's really taken to the church. Listen, you guys know, you follow the instructions I've given you. You know you're not supposed to do this. This is why you're not supposed to do it. And all his wives don't make any sense to us today anyway. I don't think we've hardened our hearts as much. I mean, we honestly don't understand. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? <laughs> I go, okay. I don't know. I mean, he was acting like, come on, anybody who has common sense knows that you can't do that. Really? I don't understand it. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? No. I, I don't see that. And when I was coming into church, we were all hippies. You can imagine the hell that broke out when we walked into churches, man. We had hair flying everywhere. And these, some of these people who just really, you know, just reamed us out because a man is not supposed to have long hair. But who determines long? That's the problem that we have with these things. Is his shoulder too long? Is it over his ears too long? Of course, they would because they were hardcore, you know, Bible-built guys all had their shaved, head shaved, <laughs> you know, except for a crew cut. You don't have a crew cut and your head shaved. You're an abomination to the Lord. And you giggle. Is that not what they were saying? Oh, man, for those of you who remember our age, oh, the fights and churches used to be over that. Again, since then, really since that whole movement, that's when everybody quit paying attention to this stuff. Because apparently people could get saved who had long hair. People could worship Jesus who had long hair. People could worship had long hair. Paul says, doesn't nature teach you that this is wrong? And I, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, and doesn't nature teach you that in verse 15, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Okay, I kind of get that. I mean, one of the things that you notice about young women is their long, glorious hair. And the longer their hair, the more glorious they are, right? It's beautiful, but they tend to be younger. It's pretty much standard in our culture. The older you get, the shorter your hair becomes for a woman, right? In fact, some people give women who are getting older with really long, they give them a hard time, you know? How come your hair is so long? Why don't you cut your hair, you know? Uh, there are churches that uh, forbid their women to cut hair, uh, hardcore Pentecostal churches, and I... I'm great friends with some of these people. You know, I just think they're wrong. Uh, but uh, the women can never cut their hair. And you can see them a mile away. Man, can you ID these people in a heartbeat. Ooh, there's one right there. All right? Because their hair is just wadded up in a gigantic bun. It's the power of the bun. All right? And... Uh, What's well, interesting, they've really, they still do it, but they're not so mean about it anymore. I don't know if that's making any sense. They used to do it and get real mean about it, especially like UPC churches, you know, Pentecostal churches. And I love these people. I just did a seminar with one of them down in uh, Florida a few months ago. We had a fabulous time. We came in, you know, doing the complete opposite of what they normally do, but they were kind and gracious and they were so happy to see us and they treated us like we were gold. But in their culture, they still have these rules. And women can never wear a dress anywhere near her knees. <laughs> it's got to be low. You know, you might see a calf once in a while. Hopefully that doesn't throw anybody. And, uh, uh, you know, very strict. And with the hair, they're big on the hair. Men have very short hair. The women have very long hair. And they're thinking this. Now, again, 
if those kind of churches, if you could witness an unusual presence of God, and, and then I would start to understand, man, maybe that we need to do it. But I, I don't notice those. A lot of them actually tend to be fairly small churches that don't seem to affect a lot of people. Uh, they've got a few, everybody's got a few big churches, but by and large, they're, they're small churches. So I don't know. Um, doesn't nature teach you that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. And then he makes this argument. If anybody is going to have a cow about this, all right? If anybody's going to fight, if you're going to be contentious about it, we have no other practice. What do you get upset about? This is kind of our thing. This is what else do we do? Well, it's a bit of an exaggeration because they had lots of practices. <laughs> Not eating demon food, <laughs> praying, and the fruits of the Spirit, how, how the church's services. So I, I don't know. Nor do the churches of God. I, I just, I, I don't know. He really lays this out. He's very straight about it. He makes his argument. None of the arguments make sense. Uh, we don't know what he's talking about. His examples don't make sense. His reference that even nature teaches this to you and you just go, really? I, I don't understand. And what is the definition of long versus short? And anyway, so here's the problem that we run into today. There are people who, because they know that nobody really follows us anymore, because we will concede it to culture. Although, again, it's certainly contrary to Jewish culture. A man covers his head when he prays. Uh, you know, I got to tell you, it does bug me a little bit when we're praying a guy has a cap still on his head. But I'm 120 years old, and... I was raised that way, and I don't say anything. What? We got these guys up here leading worship with their beanies on their head, right? The hip-looking, you know, knit beanies, uh, singing a song, and I just look at them and go, oh, good grief. So I don't say anything because it's not the kind of why, you know, again, what? <laughs> we don't apply to women. Why would we just pick on guys, you know? But you guys have it right now. Just don't look around. <laughs> Are wearing hats right now in church. I don't care. Keeps your head warm. <laughs> Especially when you don't have much hair anymore. You need all the help you can get, right? So, but you have to admit, to, so what they say is, because Paul was talking about a culture that we don't understand, that they apply that to almost everything, particularly morality. These are very liberal churches, even evangelical churches who tend to skew very liberal who they really believe that Paul's admonition against fornicating, sex outside of marriage, adultery, uh, homosexuality, all these things, they're just cultural things. And they would say, look, did he put hats on ladies? Well, no. Well, it's the same thing here. But, but that's really a huge stretch because when Paul talks about sexual immorality and the lying cheating, you know, that list of stuff, he said those who practice this stuff, and someone asked me the other day, visiting here, actually a transgender who's been visiting here, who's been visiting for a while, which, by the way, some of y'all just relax with this whole thing. Now, I get the law. What the, my wife made it clear to me. These laws make it so that a man, any man, can just walk into a woman's bathroom. That wasn't really the intention, but that's the outcome, so I get it. Ladies don't want guys. But the truth is, a true transgender, you can't tell. The only way you could even enforce the law as a genital check at the door. 
All right, you can go over there. I mean, come on. So just relax. Well, he said, well, they're, they're confused people. Okay, they need to find Jesus and stuff, and we're certainly not encouraging people to do it, but I'm talking to this person. I would never, there's no way. I guarantee, I'd bet you money. Most of you would never guess. In fact, the whole time I'm talking about, I had no idea until they told me. I went, oh, okay. You know, wow. Why am I talking about this? Oh, but so the, the, the <laughs> he's off the reservation again. All right. So uh, uh, that person asked me, well, what about if I have sex with someone of the same sex? I said, well, that, that's just wrong. They said, why? Because the Bible says so. Well, why? I said, well, I don't know. It's just the rules. It's the same rules that I can't go cheat on my wife. It's the same rule that if I'm dating someone, I can't go just have sex in the backseat of the car, you know, or whatever. These are sexual rules for very specific purposes, and that's part of the rules. And, and the person went, oh, okay. I wasn't mean to him. Of course, at this point, I didn't even know, you know. Then they brought up later. I thought, well, I'm glad I wasn't mean, you know, but everybody's, we had a big discussion a couple of, you know, we need a transgender policy in our church. Really? Just stop. Just stop. Who's going to do the genital checks? I'm not doing that job. We do need some genital checkers as volunteers out there. Please go sign up on Sunday morning. And, and pl- you're talking one of the smallest groups of people in the world, demographically speaking. You know, the fact that we have, apparently we have two. One at another campus and one here. Was stunning to me. But they behave themselves, they're nice, they're not doing it. Look, you go on there, you close the door, you do your business, you leave. I ain't checking nothing. All right? Don't email me about it. All right. So the point is, they say, well... We don't follow this rule. Why should we follow those? Because it's very different. Paul, when speaking of sexual immorality and greediness and all this stuff, this, this is a short little paragraph of stay away from this. He says, I have warned you, but, and he does it several times in his writing. I warn you that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, all right. Now, what does that mean? Then people will argue. Well, it just means you won't get blessed. Really sounds more intense than that, but even at that, you should stay away from it if it's not going to get blessed, all right? I mean, it's very Paul does not close this with, if you don't do this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because I'm pretty doggone sure if he would have ended with that, you know, I don't know what he's talking about. Put on a hat, ladies. You guys have to take him off. So he could have, he didn't. He just said, look, what are you whining about? We don't have many rules. It's one of the rules. Okay, but it's not a strong argument. And so you take it into culture, and which is really odd because last, last 2,000 years, it has been the culture of Christian churches to do this. We just don't do it anymore. And quite frankly, ever since the whole hippie thing, uh, people just don't make a big deal out of it. If there was a strong, strong condemnation to this, again, like, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, whole different kind of He doesn't do that. He makes his case. It's confusing his case. And he is, and at the end, he says, you know, why are you whining? We don't have a lot of rules. Obey this rule. Okay, so there. Everybody get, get this one? All right, so moving on. 
in the following directive, I have no praise for you. So he's not happy about these guys now. He says, for your meetings do more harm than good. Well, that's bad. You come together to church, it's worse off than if you had to gather in the first place. Wow. Okay. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. You're all fighting with each other. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. I think he's being sarcastic here. No doubt there, you have to say, well, I, I listen to Paul and, and I listen to Peter and I listen to only Jesus. And I go, no doubt you gotta see who God likes the best. Okay, so he already condemned this earlier on in the letter. Um, so then, when you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry while another person gets drunk. So I have to understand the context here. The original Lord's Supper was, in fact, a supper. When they gathered together to break the bread and drink, they did this very soberly. They took it seriously, as I just pointed out to you. But it was dinner, and it was the Lord's Supper. And he says, you guys, you're getting together. Some of you are pigging out. Other people are going hungry. Some of you are getting into the wine, and really getting plastered, which is a strange thing when you consider so many evangelicals argue that the Lord's Supper was only grape juice. Really? Exactly how much grape juice must one consume to get drunk? It's just a ridiculous Ridiculous argument. Now, if you don't want to take, we give you the grape juice option. All right. I promise you, when Jesus did the Last Supper, it was wine. When they did the Last Supper, it was wine. I'm not forcing you to drink wine. Just pointing it out. All right. So, he's getting mad. They're getting together partying. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Because some people get together, some people just came with a whole lot of food. It would be like having a potluck, but everybody kept it to their group. Usually when you have a potluck, everybody gets dibs, right? That's the right thing to do it. Well, these people, they have their own, you know, the people with a lot of money had really, you know, hey, pass another turkey leg over. You know, the people over here got biscuits and gravy, and that's it. Some people didn't get anything. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, and he starts pointing out what, what communion is about. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, we quote this every Sunday, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after his supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, they took it very seriously. Paul is still pointing out to take it very seriously. They made it into a big pig out. So then, whoever eats and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you're not taking this seriously, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A little intense. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink the cup. That's why we always do it right after the message. The message is challenging us at some point, you know, and the type of community, you get together and you should examine yourself. You know, where am I at? Maybe you got to reflect a little, you know, where have I been this last week? Oh, you know, I shouldn't have run over my neighbor's cat. 
you know, that wasn't very nice, you know, or, or said something nasty or whatever, a horrible thing. They, and then you repent. And you ask God to forgive you and you try and just get, that's the point why we do this. You should be making, it's not just, you know, I'll take one of those. You know, it's not just to be casual. Um, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, check this out, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And then he points out, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and some of you have died, fallen asleep. It's not like pastors preaching too long and they fell asleep. It means they kicked a bucket. So he's literally pointing, I said, you know why some of you guys are so sick all the time? You know why some of the aches and pains? You know why you're having all the problems physically you're having? You know why some people even died of some of these things, you don't even know why they're dying, they get the flu and he dies. He says, because you're eating judgment on yourself. Ever since this, Christians made communion about a little wafer <laughs> and a little drink. We don't, we don't mess with this. We don't mess. This isn't a party anymore. I know originally it was a supper, but better to do it in great moderation and just enough to reflect on the body and the blood of Christ than to, because nobody wants this. Who wants to sign up for this? So that's, what, that's why Christian tradition, much after this got established, they, they, whoa, we need to take this seriously. This God thing is serious. We don't want to be disrespectful. And, uh, and we certainly don't want, you know, people to be getting sick and all kinds of, because God is really upset and, and there's, you know, just literally judgment falling on people uh, because they're not taking this seriously. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment, he says. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who's hungry, if that's your purpose, that's why it became, communion became not about satisfying hunger. Uh, it became about reflecting on what this represented. So anyone who's hungry should eat something at home. You know, pig out before you get here. All right, don't get here and say, oh, what's, what's for communion? All right, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions, which of course we never hear because he didn't write it down. I don't know what other directions he's talking about. It's one of those things you go, well, wait a minute, what was that? So we don't know, we don't know, nobody knows. All right, so he gave further directions. I don't know what, you know, you certainly can guess and speculate. But again, this is why the Lord's Supper today is just a very simple exercise. The entire emphasis for us now, focusing on the death of Jesus, who without that, none of this matters. All right? So that's where that comes from. All right, then he says, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. I don't want you to be uninformed. This is one of our favorite verses when we were growing up. In the King James Version, it says, I do not want you ignorant, brethren. Remember this? And then we would quote it looking to each other and say, I don't want you ignorant, brethren. You know, it was, it, was like, it was a running joke. We tell girls when some guy's trying to date you and you don't like them, just quote that verse to them. I don't want you, ignorant brethren. And it was, I wrote it and reminded me of the joke. What do you care about? I don't want you to become uninformed. Don't be ignorant. Uh, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. 
what exactly is the implication of that? How intense? Does that mean someone who uh, can't literally say the words of Jesus the Lord without uh, the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Some people actually take it that way. I would take it more in the sense of meaning it. No one can say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit of God in your life. I don't think it means literally the words, but what do I know? All right. So, now there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone is the same God at work. And then he starts to describe what should be the normal Christian experience. Sadly today, I would have to say by and large, it is rather abnormal. He starts talking about how God does miraculous things among Christian people. Uh, my argument, which I will make stronger next week, is uh, this should be happening in the church. What happened in the 40s and 50s and the televangelists and stuff came along, they made it about them. They would come to the healing, because I got a healing ministry and I will heal you and I have the power of God on me and it's all about me. Somebody take a picture of me. All right? And that, by and large, still persists in a lot of evangelical thinking. They're looking for a miracle. They try to find someone who has a, a healing ministry or something like that. I'm not saying that's not legit. Maybe it is legit. I don't know. I don't think it meant to make a handful of people superstars in the church that drive Rolls Royces because, you know, they've gotten so, such big offerings, such big crowds. Uh, I don't think that is what this was about. I think a lot of it is abused and misdirected. I think when he's talking about gifts of healing and of miracles and discerning of spirits, we'll discuss all this uh, when we get in next week, describing some of these spiritual gifts. I think that's supposed to be the normal experience among Christian people, that you would have an unusual word, unusual insights. And I think if we start, and I, the good thing about getting here is the reason why it's not so common today is because we just don't talk about it enough. Because I think if we start talking about it and emphasizing it, which is what we want to do, you'll start to experience more of this stuff. You'll see God showing up in ways you never expected. But if you never think of it and you don't think that's what should be happening, it'll never happen. So uh, we have to own this uh, to some degree. Uh, Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches are much more likely to emphasize these things. Some of it to uh, exaggeration that is why you don't listen to them because they, they really go a little nuts on stuff and they start making up things that aren't even in the Bible. I will attack all of that next week. All right. Not to attack, I'm not trying to attack anybody, but there's a lot of crazy that's done in the name of the Holy Spirit. And it's without support in the scriptures. And virtually anybody from this line all thinks it's God and it's a wonderful thing. No, it's a little nuts. All right, that's why so many churches don't talk about it because we don't want to be connected with the nuts. We don't want to do that. We need to talk about this because God wants to show up and do supernatural things in people of faith as they connect with each other, which we'll talk all about that next week, all right? God bless you guys. See you next week.